Isn't it an honor to be able to raise our voices and sing as we do when we come together on Sunday mornings and Sunday afternoons and then Wednesday evenings to praise the God of heaven with the wonderful messages of these songs and we're always so delightful and blessed to be able to do that. I would remind each of us one, one additional time about their singing next Sunday. Let's keep in mind the 2 o'clock hour. May I also suggest call, call up a friend, call up a neighbor, a fellow brother and sister in Christ at some place maybe, and invite them to come be with us, lift their voice together in song as well. It'll be a tremendous time of singing. Again, that's next Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock. As we come tonight to this portion of our worship, may I invite you to think about the ancient city of Iconium. You probably will notice that, in fact, is a part of the title of the lesson, and I hope that you've kept your Bible open to Acts chapter 14, for it is to that place that we'll turn our attention for the next few moments this evening, a visit to Iconium. I would hope that as we study this this evening, we will, in fact, accomplish a few things, one of which will be a brief appreciation about the visit of Paul to the ancient city of Iconium, this wasn't his only visit, I must confess, but it is the one about which we know the most. There were other visits Paul made to this same city, but often the sketches are so brief, maybe even a portion of one sentence. But in the text that was just read a moment ago, John in fact read for us, and there you'll notice a rather extensive set of ideas, and we're going to study that particular passage tonight. This opening slide will, I hope, in fact, prepare our mind to be ready to enter into again the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. It has been many times observed that amongst the 27 books of the New Testament, the book of Acts is, of course, the New Testament history book. It is often the background for the later books of the New Testament. Quite frankly, before you or I study one word of the Corinthian epistles, we should reflect on Acts 18 when the gospel first came to Corinth. Before we study the book of Ephesians, we should reflect on Acts 19 when the gospel came to the city of Ephesus. That's just two examples among others that might be listed. But Luke, you see, was a first-rate historian. He was able to meticulously, through 28 chapters in the book of Acts, pen for us an inspired history, a history of the church, a history of its expansion throughout the early first century, Tonight, we're going to just look at one small aspect of the book of Acts. It is, again, the first seven verses of Acts 14. You'll also notice on that same slide, we learn in the book of Acts not only the history of some of those later New Testament books, but we also have a panoramic view of three missionary journeys followed by a voyage to Rome, all by the Apostle Paul. As he did that, of course, he brought the gospel to far distant places in the Roman Empire. He even brought the gospel to the imperial city of Rome. Maybe it would be fair to say, as at least you and I look at Iconium, tonight maybe we know very little on the whole about that ancient city. But I believe we'll be impressed about the lessons you and I can extract from it and yet use so vigorously and so beneficially even today. And so it is as we close that lesson, or close that slide I should say, this, of course, was the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit oversaw the work of Paul and others. And may I say that as we turn the slide and come to the city of Iconium, I thought it would be well for us to think briefly at least about the setting. What took place to bring Paul to this city? 
What kind of mindset may he have had? And not only that, what about the companions who were with him? All of that takes us to the first missionary journey. As Acts chapter 13 begins, the church in the ancient city of Antioch made preparation to send Paul and others on a missionary journey. You and I would recognize today, not unlike us, supporting a preacher to go to a distant place and preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. As Paul, in fact, and Barnabas, who was his companion on that occasion, as they left Antioch and proceeded on, I have listed very briefly the initial set of cities that were listed. I thought a map would do it much better. If you'll notice quickly, here is at least a quick look at a map that presents to us the cities visited on the first missionary journey. You might well take note of where the city of Antioch was down at the far right of your map. And from there, they left Seleucia, the seaport town, and came to the island of Cyprus. Again, Paul preached on that island and with a rather interesting amount of success. But from the island of Cyprus back to the mainland, Maybe you can read the large word Pamphylia. They came ashore there at Perga. And you'll notice in Pisidia there was another city called Antioch, and they visited it. In fact, that's in some ways where our study will begin tonight as we reflect on what happened at Antioch and what forced Paul to leave. But might I ask you to note while the map's before us that after leaving Antioch, they came to Iconium. And there will be the central backdrop of our study throughout the course of the lesson tonight. As we revisit the previous slide for just a moment, the companions that Paul primarily had as that first journey began were on the one hand Barnabas and on the other John Mark. As they proceeded onward and of course passed through the island of Cyprus as we just now noted, they came to the mainland, but there John Mark made a decision to go back home, to go back to Jerusalem. The text says that that ultimately caused a bit of contention with, with Paul. That will, of course, be a matter for the second missionary journey. But you may notice when they came to Antioch and Pisidia, could I ask you to notice that there was a very mixed reaction? Could I draw your attention to Acts 13, verses 42 and 43? And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. The Gentiles were so excited, they were so elated, that they begged for Paul to preach the same lesson, the same sermon again next Sunday. Actually, I should say the next Sabbath. May I ask today, how thrilling is the Word of God sometimes to you and me? We always maybe are as excited about the opportunities to worship. But here, these people were so happy and so thrilled with the message of truth. They were excited to hear Him preach again the next day, the next Sabbath opportunity. May that kind of fervor and that kind of ardent zeal always fill us as we contemplate the opportunity to assemble and not only to study but to sing and to fellowship with the God of heaven. But you'll notice that isn't the only thing that was asserted. Please note verse 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Doesn't that strike a note of excitement in your heart? As they were in this city of Antioch, the word over the course of that week had spread so that the next Sabbath day the place was full. 
nearly the whole city had come together. Doesn't that maybe share a little bit about how word of mouth had so explosively sent forth the message of that, that previous week? That does remind us of the opportunity this hours, doesn't it? To set a Christian example and to speak with others those opportunities that we have about the nature of truth. The fact that Jesus is real and there is coming, of course, a moment and a time of judgment. The whole city had come together. The next verse, though, goes on to say this. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. There were some rabble-rousers, of course, were there... In addition to those excited Gentiles, here were some Jews who were not the least bit happy about the success that had been had. And you'll notice they blasphemed and contradicted. They spoke against Paul and the message that he brought. All of that leads us to notice verse number 50. It says, The Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. The success that had been had amongst the Gentiles, you'll notice these Jews expelled Paul and Barnabas out of the city. They didn't want them around. As you and I come to the next item on that slide, would you then please note with me the circumstances that brought Paul to Iconium? After leaving the city of Antioch, after being expelled in the midst of what appeared to be a fertile ground for success with the gospel, here you'll notice Paul and Barnabas were forced to leave. And so verse number 1 of Acts 14 now says, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude both of the Jews and also of the, of the Greeks believed. The circumstances then that brought Paul to Iconium were a bit unusual, weren't they? There had been mixed success in that previous city of Antioch. But isn't it amazing that mixed success and the fact that he was expelled from the city did not crush the spirit of Paul. He went to the next place and kept on preaching. He went to the next locale and also preached the beautiful message of truth. Do you sense in Paul a positive spirit, an optimistic attitude, a character whereby he was grounded on the thought of there was a higher power than he? No doubt Paul was saddened that these Jews were unwilling to hear the message, but he knew there was precious souls in Iconium and he was determined to preach it there as well. That lights a fire in you and me, doesn't it? That not only here in the Pippin Church building... But we can support missionaries far and wide that they too, of course, can preach that message of truth. We know that they will meet with their opposition, but they will also have victory. As you look forward on that slide with me, what do we know about Iconium? That previous map that we had noticed, Iconium was located in the central tableland of Asia Minor. That was a rather special location. I've tried to state it like this. There was a major east-west highway, as highways of the ancient world might well be called, and it in fact intersected in Iconium. And therefore, travelers would travel east and west throughout that place, 
And so Iconium was in a good location in terms of its influence, both near and far. You'll notice the last thing, the interesting character of what took place. I realized Brother John read it a moment ago. And you and I noticed that in Antioch there was a mixed result. What happened in Iconium? Let's revisit and read it again. Beginning in verse 1 of Acts 14. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude both of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of His grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. They were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. What an interesting set of events in Iconium. As we transition to the next slide, what I would invite us to do is to simply revisit the scene of those seven verses and extract from it some lessons, some observations, if you please, that might be of benefit to you and me still these 20 centuries later. The first one I've asked you to notice is this one. Aren't you impressed with the conviction of Paul and of Barnabas? They had just been forcibly removed, if you please, expelled in the King James wording from the city of Antioch. And that was only about 18 to 20 miles away. And now they come to a new location, Iconium. They seem not to have been moved with fear. They seem not to have been overwhelmed with negativity and pessimism. But as we noted a moment ago, verse 1 simply says, They entered into the synagogue and they preached the gospel. What a simple motive. What a simple set of arrangements. Aren't you thankful for the simplicity of the gospel message? These particular thoughts might lead us to note this. Did you notice with me the adverb that indicates how they spoke when they came to Iconium? Verse number 3 says, They speaking boldly in the Lord. I'm so thankful for the boldness of Paul and Barnabas, aren't you? I'm thankful for the conviction that was exhibited by them as they came to a place like this one, entering into Iconium, a place, again, that was well known for many things different than the gospel. And Paul was not the least bit, it seemed, compelled or moved by the fear of what might happen to him. He preached. He knew there were souls there that needed to be saved, and he knew the gospel was the only message that could do it. He entered into the city... Verse 1 says, first at the synagogue, maybe there would be a captive audience amongst Jews there. He preached. And it says, for a long time in boldness preached he in Iconium. Boldness? That has the idea behind it of conviction, of courage, of bravery. A well-set fundamental notion concerning the nature of the message he brought. He wasn't fearful that 
it might be superseded by something else. He wasn't fearful that there were those in Iconium who, in fact, would have a clearer message than he. He knew he had the message from heaven, did he not? You'll notice some of these additional examples. So many of those wonderful brethren in New Testament times, and even some in Old Testament days, exhibited a powerful boldness in their proclamation of truth. We've noticed it in some of our Wednesday evening classes of late, haven't we? The nature of prophecy and the characteristic message that some of those Old Testament prophets exhibited. Wouldn't you say that Elijah was a man of boldness? As he stood on Mount Carmel before all of these prophets of Baal, and he with courage had the nerve to say, Why don't you set aside and let's let the God of heaven now determine and dictate who is the God that's true. Elijah did that so well, and the message was so overwhelming. John the Baptist. In the New Testament, here was a man who dressed so unusually, and his diet was so unusual. Those were indicative of his conviction and his overwhelming nature. He was not a comfortable city man. He chose to bring the message of God, given the ruggedness of the way he lived and what he ate. In Acts 4, and rather in Matthew chapter 14, that ruggedness and the directness of his message ultimately would cost him his life. Though rugged he was, he had the boldness to stand before a king and say, The woman with whom you now are, you're not lawful to have her. She belongs to another man. Ultimately, of course, his head was struck from his body because of his conviction on that point and his telling it to the king. That boldness is amplified as you and I remember what Paul asserted to Timothy. Timothy, you see, it would seem, was by nature a rather shy and timid man. And yet, as Paul began that letter to 2 Timothy, in verse 7 it says, God hasn't given us the spirit of fear and timidity. He's given us the spirit of power. Timothy wasn't to forget that. As he stood in a pulpit and preached the message, it was the Word of God that was strong and true. May you and I today, of course, by our life of conviction as well, send forth a lovely message that we are determined to know absolutely that this is right. Additional examples might be these. This was not the only time that the boldness of Paul was highlighted. Although it would come in the second missionary journey, what was it like when he came to the city of Thessalonica? That's found in Acts 17. In verse number 3, Again, though he would meet with opposition, the text says that he opened and alleged concerning the Word of God. Those two words means he defended it. There were those who, of course, stood up and opposed Paul, but Paul defended the truth. Did he do it with boldness? That chapter unfolds the fact that he did, and also successfully. Maybe one last observation will be this one. Doesn't it in a way remind us today that there are those in our world who are rather aggressive and who on occasion are rather vehement in their opposition to the Word of God? Some of our missionary friends who are in Africa or India or Malaysia or some other places, may you and I be mindful of them and pray for their courage, pray for their conviction, pray for their safety, 
For just as it was on the occasion of Paul, they may well meet those who will study in a moment are very antagonistic to the message of the, of the Word of God. Maybe it's in light of that that we come to number two and note an interesting observation about the results. You'll notice in verse number one, it says that when they spake, a great multitude both of the Jews and of the Greeks believed. Doesn't that excite you? Here as Paul and Barnabas preached, it says a great multitude, and the Greek word literally means much. It means much or many. We aren't told how many obeyed the gospel, but there were a lot of them. Iconium, it seems, was thrilled when the truth came its way. Wouldn't you and I get excited today if we had news reports like that? It seems nightly we have news reports that are heinous and negative and news reports that are filled with the folly of sin. Wouldn't it be great when there, if a news report said 50,000 people in some Middle Eastern town were baptized? Wouldn't it be great if some outback city in Australia, they heard about the gospel, an overwhelming number obeyed it? Here in Iconium, they were thrilled. It says a great company in verse number 1, a great multitude both of Greeks and of Jews believed. But you'll also notice verse number 2 has a different message to tell us. It says the unbelieving Jews... There were also some Jews there who didn't believe, you see. There were some Jews who were not convicted and convinced. That leads me to ask you to note this. Isn't it exciting to contemplate how the gospel message can work? To some, it thrills their heart as they ultimately come to appreciate the truth and the message that's contained in it. But by the same token, there are others who it seems refuse it, keep it at bay. Perhaps there are many thoughts about that that might at least be, be described. This slide will close by asking us to note this. This was, you see, not the only time that there were mixed results. We noted earlier tonight that it had previously occurred at Antioch. Some in that city had been so excited and so accepting and others had not been. Let's develop that maybe like this. It seems as though there was more, though, that should be said on this occasion. What did these unbelieving Jews do? Notice with me verse number 2. It says, They stirred up the Gentiles. It says, They made their minds evil affected against the truth. Here were some individuals that simply did not just fail to believe. They actually were aggressive enough that they stirred up the minds of those who were perhaps on the verge of believing. They were, in fact, actively working against Paul and Barnabas. Can you imagine a scene perhaps unfolding like this? Here was Paul and Barnabas perhaps on the street side preaching at one location, and across the street were the unbelieving Jews. They were, in fact, picketing and holding up signs and preaching the very opposite to Paul and Barnabas. That would take courage and convincing effort to continue to work against that kind of result, wouldn't it? It does say they stirred up their minds. That word in the Greek literally means to excite, to arouse. And you and I know today how that some individuals can be excited to great fervor and passion by a very powerful spokesman. 
You and I remember many individuals throughout the years have been blessed with an oratorical skill. They can stir a crowd into a frenzy and lead them to all kinds of rather active actions. It would seem that some Jews did like that here in Iconium. Maybe in fairness, it would easily be in a position to notice what else they did. Could I call your attention to verses 3 and 4? It says, long time, or rather, I'm sorry, at verse number 2, they made their minds evil affected against the brethren. That phrase intrigues me, as I'm sure it does you. What does it mean to say that these Jews evil affected the minds of some of the Gentiles and others? The literal Greek word means to poison. These individuals were speaking with such strong force and such strong vehemence that they poisoned the minds of those that would believe. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that so terribly sad? As you and I develop that more thoroughly, note the result of it. The city was divided in its loyalty. Verse number 4 says, But the multitude of the city was divided. Part of them held with the Jews, and part of them with the apostles. The result of this work was a great multitude initially had believed, and there was a great deal of fervor and excitement. But as soon as the Jews began to sense the success it was had, they poisoned the minds of many. They stirred them up against Paul and Barnabas, and the city was divided. There was a great group siding with the apostles and the message that Paul had brought, but a great group had now sided with these Jews who were against that message. That division leads us to note this. There was an assault made, verse number 5 tells us. It says, and when there was an assault. You and I know today that when that word is used, at least in, in the policeman and the law enforcement, an assault means that some kind of altercation has happened. Some kind of actual physical and bodily occurrence has taken place. The literal word here means an onset, and maybe it had almost come to blows. The city was divided to the point where maybe even altercations were ready to take place. In fairness, we might at least say this. They were going to treat them shamefully and stone them. Apparently, there was enough excitement in those unbelieving Jews. They stirred up the crowd. They were ready virtually to stone Paul and Barnabas. Think about that attribute of the gospel. They had came and brought this message, and they were on the verge of losing their lives. That slide closes with this observation. Isn't it still true that there is such a wide variety of reactions to the gospel? Jesus told us that's how it would be. In Matthew chapter 13, a sower went forth to sow. Some seed fell on the wayside soil. Some, in fact, fell among soil and it sprung up quickly, but yet it withered in the stony ground of the day. Other seed fell in thorny soil and it too came up and grew, but the cares and the riches of the world choked it out. And there was also some good and fertile soil into which that seed had fallen. It brought forth much fruit, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. Those soils were the conditions of the human heart. You see, some human heart's hard. It's like sowing seed on that asphalt outside. 
the devil will snatch it away before it ever brings forth. May we never allow ourselves to have a heart like that. These Jews, you see, it seems, did. They weren't in any way interested in allowing the gospel to germinate within them. Notice, though, that stony soil. It heard and it was excited at very first, but you'll notice it was so quickly turned away. What happened? It was turned away, you see, because of the difficulties that arose. When the persecution of the moment came upon them, they didn't have the duration to withstand. Do you and I? Do you and I, in a terrible lot of difficulty and persecution, do we have the duration to withstand? Aren't we told in Ephesians 6 verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. How strong are you or I spiritually? May we have a strength such that we could endure the difficulties that are described in the New Testament. Maybe one last thought would be that thorny soil. I'm persuaded that quite frankly that's the soil that's the greatest difficulty for you and me as Christians, at least where we live in our world. We're surrounded by materialism. It's easy for the devil to work his way and suddenly the cares of the world come upon us and it slowly ebbs away at our conviction and faith. And so ultimately when a difficulty arises, the cares choke away our faith. May we again not allow that to happen. We wish to be that good ground, do we not? That brings forth much fruit. And didn't in fact Paul say in Romans 7 verse 4, we must bring forth that fruit to the Master. This second lesson brings us to a third one, though. A third one that might well be stated like this. I've entitled it Persuasion. You probably have already sensed where that came in this particular passage. But notice how it begins with us. There were some, we are told, who persuaded those of ancient Iconium to be persuaded. In verse number 4 in particular it says, Part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. The city was divided. There were some who were persuaded by the wording of those unbelieving Jews. It would seem that maybe they had begun to turn their attention to the things that were of the gospel, but they were persuaded. Maybe there was eloquence involved. Perhaps there was a very strong and aggressive sense of speech making. But however it occurred, there was persuasion. As you and I develop that, might you and I ask even to this day, here were some that were on the part with the apostles and some that were with the Jews. What determined which way a person went? And could that have implications for you and me today? If someone were to appear in our community and begin to preach a particular message, could you and I tell whether it was the truth or not? Could we be persuaded to accept what is not biblical truth? Might we fall astray? What would determine it? There might be many things. There are different degrees of maturity, of course, in faith. Some might be a novice or a new creature in Christ. Others may have been a Christian for decades. Surely that would have maybe a bearing in part. But could I ask... Would all of you and, all of, and, all of, and myself included, 
be in a position to recognize that truth and to identify what would be incorrect about something someone else could say. Here, Paul and Barnabas, they came and long before the actual full Bible had been completed, they were preaching a message. There, you see, was not a fullness of Bible to compare things to for them. Aren't you thankful we've got the Holy Scriptures? We should be able to compare exactly what some man might say versus this book and absolutely know whether he's a false teacher or not. Aren't we taught in the New Testament to identify those who in fact speak the things that are not of God? Mark and avoid them, we read in Romans 16, 17. May you and I have the idea, the conviction, and the capability of it. It might well be in light of that. How sweet it is to notice others in the New Testament. Look at the closing verse to Acts 18 for just a moment. Acts 18, verse 28. There we have another description. This is of a different gentleman. It says, He, that's Apollos, mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. I believe that verse has every reason to impress us. Here was a man. It was Apollos. He was able to take Scriptures out of the Old Testament and convictingly prove to the Jews in that part of the world that Jesus was Christ. Could you and I do that? Could we take this and prove to someone who at least had an ear willing to listen that Jesus is Christ, that His church is unique, that there is a certified gospel, Galatians 1 verses 10 and 11? You and I then should desire to study to allow ourselves that we not only would not fall guilty of false persuasion, but that we could help persuade others to the things of truth. As we close that slide, isn't it impressive to notice that here in the New Testament, Paul and these other individuals, they were able to convict and convince others using the reason and evidence of the Word of God. Didn't God say, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord, Isaiah 1.18. God wants us to bring to Him all the talents and convictions we've got and allow by the Scriptures Him to prove to us that this is what He claims that it is and that He is the only God. Maybe as we close this lesson with the last point of it, we will do it by observing a carefully noted phrase. I read it a moment ago, but it's time to emphasize it. Maybe you're in position to notice verse number 2. It says again, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Of careful note is the adjective, unbelieving. May I submit to you that that has a deeper and more profound appreciation than maybe we at first would understand. And it leads us to discuss briefly the following. What is the difference, if any, between faith and belief? I raise that in part because a few weeks ago there was a debate, a discussion, if you please, between Jack Honeycutt and Michael Brauner. And there was a strong conviction on the part of what Mr. Brauner said, trying to make a distinction between faith on the one hand and belief on the other. It was a platform of his presentation. Consider this idea with me. 
The word faith occurs 245 times in the New Testament alone. Not only that, look at the next statement. We would all quickly agree that this matter of faith is an absolutely necessary thing. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it's impossible to please Him. Faith's defined in that chapter and in other places as well. But I say that to ask you to notice, look at belief. The word belief occurs 278 times in the Greek New Testament, or rather in the King James New Testament, 241 of them. Here are two words that occur so often. The religious world has often attempted to make a great distinction between them, as if belief is one thing and faith is very, very distinct and different from it. Notice the Greek words from which both of them come. Now, I realize none of us may be Greek scholars, but I would ask you just to notice the words, and do you see any similarity in them at all? The first three letters, the first three letters are the same. The fourth letter is the same. The fifth letter is the same. My point is, these two words are extraordinarily intertwined. Those who try to make a great deal of distinction between them have gone somewhat in error. They are each a vital and essential part, and the understanding of them is pointed out in a verse like this one. Did you notice verse number 2? It says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. That literal word means they didn't obey. It's much stronger than what we might have thought. To, to say that they failed to believe is to say they didn't obey. Belief and obedience go hand in hand. There's again the point Mr. Bronner tried to refute. He asserted there's a world of difference between the two. But you'll notice belief in the sight of God must emanate if it's to be of eternal value and obedience. And so these definitions, I hope, will highlight that for us. The next slide will close our lesson by asking you to notice just a few brief points and the lesson will be yours. This idea of belief and this idea of faith... First of all, you might notice that belief on occasion can be used in a way that does relate to mental assent. Paul used it that way in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, as he heard about their factions, I partly believe it. That is, I partly agree to the fact that these things exist. But notice what else might be said. Belief can also be used in a much deeper way than that. May I call to your attention John 2.24. In that passage, we remember Jesus. As He made comment about the following fact, He said that belief there was coupled not only with this matter of mental ascent, but it also included a great and developing trust. Even that's not all. Note the next one. You notice there are times and many of them in which that word belief is used in a direct way that carries the thought of obedience. It is not just a mental agreement. It carries with it those actions characteristic of a full trust in that which has been declared. Particular examples will be John 3 verse 36. That one is so significant I would encourage you to listen as I read it. John chapter 3. Verse number 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that obeyeth not the Son 
shall not see life. Did you notice? The first part of the verse mentioned belief, but then its opposite was to fail to obey. Belief goes with obedience, you see. And there you'll notice that linkage leads us to notice just a few particular examples from the book of Acts. The case in Iconium is but one of them. Another might well be the case on the day of Pentecost. When Paul, or rather when Peter and the others preached on that great and noble day, what was it that was asserted? When they cried out, meaning, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. What does verse 41 say? They that gladly received the word were baptized. And the next verse goes on to say, those that believed had all things common. So the believers were the ones that obeyed the gospel. Belief was intricately interwoven, you see, with obedience. Maybe another example. In Acts 16, verse 34, the Philippian jailer. As we recall the interesting set of events on that occasion, here was Paul as he and Silas found themselves in the Philippian prison. You may remember that belief was what was talked about, but what did the next verse say? A part of the sermon was utilized, and then it says they were baptized, and they believed. I say all of that to conclude our lesson like this. May we be cautious of hearing those who would try to make an incredible distinction between faith and belief. Both of them attached to obedience very, very carefully. And with that said, the lesson closes tonight by quickly reminding ourselves of this visit to Iconium. We've learned, haven't we, about the interesting events there, and among them, we've seen persuasion, we've seen conviction, we've seen faith and belief, and we've been reminded of how sweet it is to see the wonderful results of some who will hear the gospel and obey it. Tonight, if there's anyone in this audience who would wish to make a public response to the gospel, we'd be delighted to help you. That plan initially is you must believe in Jesus as a Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If we could help you in that regard, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a Christian, but at this moment you realize you're not faithful, you'd like to come back so that your life is an open testimony to the faith exhibited within the pages of the New Testament. If we could pray to God on your behalf, acknowledging your confession and your repentance, we'd be happy to do that too. Tonight, if there would be anyone, one or more, who would wish to come, why not do it now while we stand and sing the selected song?